0: Chapter 10, Part 1 of The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colin Samuels, Camden, Maine. The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1, by Frederick Wimper. Chapter 10. Round the World on a Man of War. Continued. The Pacific Station. A common course for a vessel crossing the Pacific would be from Australia or New Zealand to San Francisco, California. The mail steamers follow this route, touching at the Fiji and Hawaiian groups of islands, and the sailor in the Royal Navy is as likely to find this route the orders of his commander as any other. If the writer, in describing the country he knows better than any other, be found somewhat enthusiastic and gushing, he will at least give reasons for his warmth. On this subject, above all others, he writes con amore. He spent over 12 years on the Pacific coasts of America, and out of that time about seven in the Golden State, California. It has been said, See Naples and die. THE READER IS RECOMMENDED TO SEE THE GLORIOUS BAY OF SAN FRANCISCO BEFORE HE MAKES UP HIS MIND THAT THERE IS naught ELSE WORTHY OF NOTE, BECAUSE HE HAS SAILED ON THE BLUE WATERS OF THE MOST BEAUTIFUL OF THE MEDITERRANEAN BAYS. HOW WELL DOES THE WRITER REMEMBER HIS FIRST SIGHT OF THE GOLDEN GATE, AS THE ENTRANCE TO SAN FRANCISCO BAY IS POETICALLY NAMED. THE GOOD STEAMER ON WHICH HE HAD SPENT SOME 75 DAYS, WHICH HAD PASSED OVER NEARLY THE ENTIRE ATLANTIC, weathered the horn and then with the favoring trade winds had sailed and steamed up the pacific with one grand sweep to california out of sight of land the whole time was sadly in want of coals when she arrived off that coast which a dense fog entirely hid from view the engines were kept going slowly by means of any stray wood on board valuable spars were sacrificed and it was even proposed to strip the woodwork out of the steerage which contained about two hundred men, women, and children. Guns and rockets were fired, but at first with no result, and the prospect was not cheering. But at last the welcome little pilot boat loomed through the fog and was soon alongside, and a healthy, jovial-looking pilot came aboard. You can all have a good dinner tonight ashore, said that excellent seaman to the passengers, and the sea shan't rob you of it. The fog lifted as the vessel slowly steamed onwards. On approaching the entrance to the bay, on the right, cliffs and rocks are seen with a splendid beach, where carriages and buggies are constantly passing and repassing. On the top of a rocky bluff, the Seal Rock, or Cliff House, a popular hotel. Below it, in the sea, a couple or so of rocky islets covered with sea lions, which are protected by a law of the state. To the left, outside some miles, the Farallon Islands, with a capital lighthouse perched on top of one of them. Entering the Golden Gate, and looking to the right again, the Fort Point Barracks and the outskirts of the city. To the left, the many colored headlands and cliffs, on whose summit the wild oats are pale and golden in the bright sunlight. Before one, several islands, Alcatraz, bristling with guns and covered with fortifications. Goat Island, presumably so-called because on it there are no goats. Beyond, fifty miles of green water and a forest of shipping, and a city the history of which has no parallel on earth. Hills behind, with streets as steep as those of Malta, high land with spires and towers, and fine edifices innumerable, and great wharves and slips and docks in front of all, with steamships and steam ferryboats constantly arriving and departing. And now the vessel anchors in the stream, and, if not caring to haggle over the half-dollar, a large sum in English years, which the boatman demands from each passenger who wishes to go ashore, the traveler finds himself in a strange land, and amid a people of whom he will learn to form the very highest estimate. That first dinner, after the eternal bean coffee, boiled tea, tinned meats, dried vegetables, and salt horse of one ship, in a neat restaurant, where it seems everything on earth can be obtained, will surprise most visitors. An irreproachable potage, broiled salmon, the fish is a drug almost on the Pacific coasts, turtle steaks, oyster plant, artichokes, and green corn, a California quail on toast, grand muscatel grapes, green figs, and a cooling slice of melon. Roquefort cheese, or a very good imitation of it, black coffee and cigars, native wine on the table, California cognac on demand, service excellent, napkins, hot plates, flowers on the table, price moderate for the luxuries obtained and no waiter's fees the visitor will mentally forgive the boatman of the morning has he arrived in the promised land in the paradise of bon Vivants. it seems so in the evening he may take a stroll up montgomery street and a good seat at a creditably performed opera may be obtained nobody knows better than the sailor and the traveller the splendid luxury of such moments After a two or three months monotonous voyage, and in good sooth he generally abandons himself to it, he has earned it, and who shall say him nay? The same evening may be he will go to a 300-roomed hotel, they now have one of 750 rooms, where for three dollars, twelve shillings, six, he can sup, sleep, breakfast, and dine sumptuously. He will be answered 20 questions for nothing by a civil clerk in the office of the hotel, read the papers for nothing in the reading room, have a bath for nothing, and find it is not the thing to give fees to the waiters. It is a new revelation to many who have stopped before in dozens of first-class English and continental houses. Seen, says Mr. W. F. Ray, as I saw it for the first time. The appearance of San Francisco is enchanting built on a hill slope, up which many streets run to the top, and illuminated, as many of those streets were, with innumerable gas lamps, the effect was that of a huge dome ablaze with lamps arranged in lines and circles. Those who have stood in Prince's Street at night, and gazed upon the old town and castle of Edinburgh, can form a very correct notion of the fairy-like spectacle. Expecting to find San Francisco a city of wonders, I was not disappointed when it seemed to my eyes a city of magic, such a city as Aladdin might have ordered the genie to create, in order to astonish and dazzle the spectator. I was warned by those whom personal experience of the city had taught to distinguish glitter from substance, not to expect that the reality of the morrow would fulfill the promise of the evening. Some of the parts which now appeared the most fascinating were said to be the least attractive when viewed by day. Still, the panorama was deprived of none of its glories by these whispers of well meant warning. The present writer has crossed the bay in the ferry and other boats a hundred times, and on a fine night, and they have about nine months of fine nights in California, he never missed an opportunity of going forward toward the bows of the land when it approached san francisco as mr mcrae writes the full-orbed stars twinkling overhead are almost rivaled by the myriads of gas lights illuminating the land less than thirty years ago this city of three hundred thousand souls was but a mission village and the few inhabitants of california were mostly demoralized mexicans lazy half-breeds and wretched indians who could almost live without work, and as a rule did so. Wild cattle roamed at will, and meat was to be had for the asking. The only ships which arrived were like the brig Pilgrim, described by Dana in two years before the mast, bound to California for hides and tallow. Now the tonnage of the shipping of all nations, which enters the port of San Francisco, is enormous. The discovery made by Marshall in 1847 first brought about the revolution. Such is the power of gold. Now, California depends far more on her corn and wool and hides, her wine, her grapes, oranges, and other fruits, and on innumerable industries. Reader, you have eaten bread made from California wheat. It fetches a high price in Liverpool on account of its fine quality. You may have been clothed in California wool, and your boots made of her leather. More than likely you have drunk California wine, of which huge quantities are shipped to Hamburg, where they are watered and doctored for the rest of Europe, and exported under French and German names. Your head may have been shampooed with California borax, and your watch chain was probably, and some of your coin assuredly, made from the gold of the Golden State. This is not a book on the land, but two or three stories of Californian life in the early days may, however, be forgiven. The first is of a man who had just landed from a ship, and who offered a somewhat seedy-looking customer, lounging on the wharf a dollar to carry his portmanteau. He got the reply, I'll give you an ounce of gold to see you carry it yourself. The new arrival thought he had come to a splendid country, and shouldered his burden like a man. When the other, a successful gold finder, not merely gave him his ounce, little less than four pounds sterling, but treated him to a bottle of champagne which cost another ounce. The writer can well believe the story, for he paid two and a half dollars, nearly half a guinea, for an illustrated London news, and two dollars for a copy of Punch in the Caribou Mines, in eighteen sixty three, while a friend, now retired on a competency in England, started a little weekly newspaper the size of a sheet of foolscap, selling it for one dollar, four shillings two per copy. He was fortunately not merely a competent writer, but a practical printer. He composed his articles on paper first, and then in type, worked the press, delivered them to his subscribers, collected advertisements and payments, and no doubt would have made his own paper, if rags had not been too costly. A sailor purchased about the year 1849, in an auction room, while out on a spree, the lots of land on which the plaza, one of the most important business squares of San Francisco, now stands. He went off again, and after several years cruising about the world, returned to find himself a millionaire. The city hall stands on that property. It is surrounded by offices, shops, and hotels, and very prettily planted with shrubs, grass plots, and flowers. There was a period when females were so scarce in California that the miners and farm hands, I and the farmers and proprietors too, a large number of these were old sailors, would travel any distance merely to see one. At this present time, any decent English housemaid receives twenty dollars, four pounds per month, and is found while a superior servant, a first-class cook, or a competent housekeeper. gets anything from thirty dollars upwards. Theatres at San Francisco were once rude buildings of boards and canvas, and the stalls were benches. A story is told that at a performance at such a house, quite a commotion was caused by the piercing squall of a healthy baby, brought in by a mother who perhaps had not had any amusement for a year or two, and most assuredly had no servant with whom to leave it at home, which was heard above the music. Here, you fiddlers, roared out a stalwart man in a red shirt and gum boots, just down from the mines. Stop that tune. I haven't heard a baby cry for several years. It does me good to hear it. The one touch of nature made that rough audience akin, and all rose to their feet, cheering the baby, and insisting that the orchestra must stop, and stop it did until the child was quieted. Then a collection was made, not of coppers and small silver but of ounces and dollars to present the child with something handsome as a souvenir of its success san francisco as the most important commercial emporium and port of the whole pacific has a particular interest to the man of the sea it has societies homes and bethels for his benefit and a fine marine hospital at the merchant's exchange he will find the latest shipping news and quotations while there are many public institutions that are open to him as to all others above all he will find one of the most conscientious in kind as well as influential of british consuls here and how often the sailor abroad may need his interference only the sailor and the merchant knows who is also one of the oldest in hbm consular service no matter his sect it is represented San Francisco is full of churches and chapels. If he needs instruction and literary entertainment, he will get it at the splendid Mercantile Library or admirably conducted Mechanics Institute. There is a capital Art Association with hundreds of members. He will find journalism of a new type, live, vigorous, generous, and semi-occasionally vicious. The papers of San Francisco will, however, compare favorably with those of any other American city, short of New York and Boston. The sailor will find the city as advanced in all matters pertaining to modern civilization, whether good or bad, as any he has ever visited. The naval officer will find admirable clubs, and, if of the Royal Navy, will most assuredly be put on the books of one or more of them for the period of his stay. He will find, too, that San Francisco hospitality is unbounded, that balls and parties are nowhere better carried out, and that the rising generation of California girls are extremely good-looking, and that the men are stalwart, fine-looking fellows, very unlike the typical bony Yankee, who, by the by, is getting very scarce even in his own part of the country, the New England states. If Jack has been to China, he will recognize the truth of the fact that parts of San Francisco are Chinese as Hong Kong itself. There are joss houses, with a big, stolid-looking idol sitting in state, the temple gay with tinsel and china, metalwork and paint, smelling faintly of incense and strongly of burnt paper. There are Chinese restaurants by the dozen, from the high-class dining rooms with balconies, flowers, small banners and inscriptions down to the itinerant restaurateur with his charcoal stove and soup pot. Then there are Chinese theatres, smelling strongly of opium and tobacco, where the orchestra sits at the back of the stage, which is curtainless and devoid of scenery. The dresses of the performers are gorgeous in the extreme. When any new arrangement of properties, etc., is required on the stage, the changes are made before your eyes as, for example, placing a table to represent a raised balcony, or piling up some boxes to form a castle, and so forth. Their dramas are often almost interminable, for they take the reign of an emperor, for example, and play it through, night after night, from his birth to his death. In details, they are very literal, and hold the mirror up to nature fully. If the said emperor had special vices, they are displayed on the stage, The music is to european ears frightful fearful and wonderful a mixture of discordant sounds resembling those of ungreased cartwheels and railway whistles mingled with the rolling of drums and striking of gongs some of the streets are lined with chinese shops ranging from those of the merchants in tea silks porcelain and lacquered ware a dignified and polite class of men who are often highly educated and speak english extremely well to those of the cigar-makers, barbers, shoemakers, and laundrymen. Half the laundry work in San Francisco is performed by John Chinaman. There is one Chinese hotel or caravan which looks as though it might, at a stretch, accommodate 200 people, in which 1,200 men are packed. The historian of the future will watch with interest the advancing or receding waves of population as they move over the surface of the globe now surging in great waves of resistless force now peacefully subsiding leaving hardly a trace behind the pacific mail steamship Company's steamers have brought from china to san francisco as many as twelve hundred chinamen and very occasionally of course more than that number on a single trip the lowest estimate of the number of chinese in california is seventy thousand while they are spread all over the Pacific states and territories and indeed in lesser numbers all over the American continent. One finds them in New England factories, New York laundries, and southern plantations. Their reception in San Francisco used to be with brickbats and other missiles and hooting and jeering on the part of the lower classes of the community. This is not the place to enter into a discussion on the political side of the question. Suffice it to say that they were, and still are, a necessity in California, where the expense of reaching the country has kept out white labor to an extent so considerable that it still rules higher than in almost any other part of the world. The respectable middle classes would hardly afford servants at all if it were not for the Chinese. All the better classes support their claims to full legal and social rights the chinamen who come to san francisco are not coolies and a large number of them pay their own passages over when brought over by merchants or one of the six great chinese companies their passage money is advanced and they of course pay interest for the accommodation on arrival in california if they do not immediately go to work they proceed to the company-house of their particular province where in a kind of caravanserai rough accommodations for sleeping and cooking are afforded. Hardly a better system of organization could be adopted than that of the companies, who know exactly where each man in their debt is to be found, if he is hundreds of miles from San Francisco. Were it possible to adopt the same system in regard to emigrants from this country, thousands would be glad to avail themselves of the opportunity of proceeding to the Golden State. One little anecdote, and the Chinese must be left to their fate. It happened in 1869. Two Chinese merchants had been invited by one of the heads of a leading steamship company to visit the theater where they had taken a box. The merchants, men of high standing among their countrymen, accepted. Their appearance in front of it was a signal for an outburst of ruffianism on the part of the gallery. It was the gods versus the celestials, and for a time the former had it all their own way in vain lawrence barrett the actor came forward on the stage to try to appease them he is supposed to have said that any well-conducted person had a right to a seat in his house an excited gentleman in the dress circle reiterated the same ideas and was rewarded by a torrent of hisses and caterwauling. the chinaman alarmed that it might result in violence to them would have retired but a dozen gentlemen from the dress circle and orchestra seats requested them to stay promising them protection, and the merchants remained. They could see that all the better and more respectable part of the house wished them to remain. After 20 or more minutes of interruption, the gallery was nearly cleared by the police, and the performance allowed to proceed. And yet the very class who are so opposed to the Caucasian complain that he does not spend his money in the country where he makes it, but hoards it up for China. The story explains the actual position of the Chinamen in America today, the upper and middle classes, i, the honest mechanics who require their assistance, support their claims. The lowest scum of the population persecute, injure, and not unfrequently murder them. Many a poor John Chinaman has, as they say in America, been found missing. Sailor ashore in San Francisco may likely enough have an opportunity of feeling the tremor of an earthquake. As a rule, they have been exceedingly slight. But that of the 21st of October, 1868, was a serious affair. Towers and steeples swayed to and fro. Tall houses trembled. Badly built wooden houses became disjointed. Walls fell. Many buildings, for some time afterwards, showed the effects in cracked walls and plastering, dislocated doors and window frames. A writer in the Overland Monthly, soon after the event, put the matter forcibly, When recording the great earthquake of Lisbon. He said, Over the parts of the city where ships anchored twenty years ago, they may anchor again, for the worst effects were confined to the made ground, that is, land reclaimed from the bay. Dwellings on the rocky hills were scarcely injured at all, reminding us of the relative fates of the man who built his house upon a rock, and of him who placed it on the sand. Four persons only were killed on that occasion, all of them from the fall of badly constructed walls, loose parapets, etc. The alarm in the city was great, excited people rushing wildly through the streets and frightened horses running through the crowds. California possesses other ports of importance, but as regards English naval interests in the Pacific, Esquimalt, Vancouver Island Beach, which has a fine landlocked harbor of deep water, dock, and naval hospital, deserves the notice of the reader. It is often the rendezvous for seven or eight of H.M.'s vessels, from the Admiral's flagship to the tiniest steam gunboat. Victoria, the capital, is three miles off and has a pretty little harbor itself, not, however, adapted for large vessels. Formerly, the colonies of Vancouver Island and British Columbia, the mainland, were separate and distinct colonies. They are now identified under the latter name. Their value never warranted the full paraphernalia of a double colonial government. Two governors, colonial secretaries, treasurers, attorney generals, etc. For these countries, charming and interesting to the tourist and artist will only attract population slowly. The resources of British Columbia in gold, timber, coal, fisheries, etc. are considerable, but the long winters on the mainland and the small quantity of open land are great drawbacks approaching vancouver island from the sea the inside channel is entered through the grand opening to the straits of fuca which cook missed and vancouver discovered to the eastward are the rocks and light of cape flattery while the rather low termination of vancouver island thick with timber is seen to the westward the scene in the straits is often lively with steamers and shipping great men of war sometimes of foreign nationalities coast packet boats proceeding not merely to Vancouver Island, but to the ports of Washington Territory on the American side, timber, called lumber, always on that side of the world, vessels, colliers, proceeding to Nanaimo or Bellingham Bay, to the coal mines, coasting and trading schooners, and Indian canoes, some of them big enough to accommodate 60 or more persons, and carrying a good amount of sail the straits have many beauties and as approaching the entrance of esquimalt harbor the olympian range of mountains snow-covered and rugged loom in the distance the scene is grandly beautiful while in the channel rocky islets and islands covered with pine and arbutus abound outside the straits two lighthouses are placed to warn the unwary voyager by night often those lighthouses may be noted apparently upside down Mirage is common enough in the Straits of Fuca. Victoria, in 1862, had at least 12,000 or 15,000 people, mostly drawn thither by the fame of the Caribou Mines on the mainland of British Columbia. Not 20% ever reached those mines. When ships arrived in the autumn, it was utterly useless to attempt a long journey of about 600 miles, partly by steamer, but two-thirds of which must be accomplished on foot or horseback were often muleback, over rugged mountain paths, through swamps and forests. Consequently, a large number had to spend the winter in idleness, and in the spring, in many cases, their resources were exhausted. Many became tired of the colony. Roughing it was not always the pleasant kind of thing they had imagined, and so they went down to California or left for home. Others were stuck fast in the colony, and many suffered severe privations, although so long as they could manage to live on salmon alone they could obtain plenty from the indians who hawked it about the streets for a shilling or two shillings apiece the latter for a very large fish the son of a baronet at one time might be seen breaking stones for a living in victoria and unless men had a very distinct calling profession or trade they had to live by their means or have a very rough time of it these remarks are not made to deter adventurous spirits from going abroad but we would advise them to look well before they leap but how utterly unfitted for mining work were the larger part of the young men who had travelled so far only to be disappointed there was no doubt of the gold being there two hundred ounces of the precious metal may have been washed out in an eight-hour shift a shift is the same as a watch on board ship and this was kept up for many days in succession the miners working day and night but that mine had been three years in process of development and only one of the original proprietors was among the lucky number of shareholders. A day or so before the first gold had been found, struck is the technical description. His credit was exhausted, and he had begged vainly for flour, etc., to enable him to live and work. The ordinary price of a very ordinary meal was two dollars, and it will be seen that, unless employed or simply traveling for pleasure, it was a ruinous place to stop in. Fancy, then, the condition of perhaps as many as 4,000 unemployed men, out of a total of 7,000 men on the various creeks, a good half of whom were of middle and upper classes at home. But for one happy fact, that beef, which, as the miners said, packed itself into the mines, in other words, the cattle were driven in from a distance of hundreds of miles, was reasonably cheap, hundreds of them may have starved. Everything, from flour, tea, sugar, Bacon and beans to metal implements and machinery had to be packed there on the backs of mules and cost from fifty cents and upward per pound for the mere cost of transportation. Tea was ten shillings a pound, flour and sugar a dollar a pound, and so on. Those who fancy that gold mining, and especially deep gravel mining, as in caribou, is play work, may be told that it is perhaps the hardest as it is certainly the most risky and uncertain work in the world and that it requires machinery expensive tools etc which in places like caribou cost enormous sums to supply if labor was to be employed good practical miners carpenters etc much of the machinery was of wood received at that period ten to sixteen dollars per day this digression may be pardoned as the sea is so intimately bound up with questions of emigration Apart from this, from personal observation, the writer knows that quite a proportion of miners have been sailors, and in many cases deserted their ships. In the early days of Australia, California, and British Columbia, this was eminently the case. A large proportion of the sailors in the Royal Navy have, or will at some period, pass some time on the Pacific Station, in which case they will inevitably go to Vancouver Island, where there is much to interest them. They will find Victoria a very pretty little town, with government house, cathedral, churches and chapels, a mechanics institute, a theater, good hotels and restaurants, the latter generally in French hands. He will find a curious mixture of English and American manners and customs, and a very curious mixture of coinage, shillings being the same as quarter dollars, while crowns are only the value of dollars, five shillings against four shillings too. Some years ago the island system was different from that of the mainland. On the latter florins were equal to half dollars, which they are nearly, while on the island they were thirty-seven and a half cents only, one shilling seven and a half. The Hudson's Bay Company, which has trading posts throughout British Columbia, took advantage of the fact to give change for American money on their steamers in English florins obtaining them on the island. They thus made nearly 25% in their transaction, besides getting paid the passengers' fare. Yet the traveller, strange to say, did not lose by this. From landing at New Westminster, he found that what was rated at a little over 18 pence on Vancouver Island had suddenly, after travelling only 70 miles or so, increased in value to upward of two shillings. Outside Victoria there are many pleasant drives and walks to The Arm where amid a charming landscape interspersed with pines and natural fir woods wild flowers and mossy rocks there is a pretty little rapid or fall to Sonic where the settlers homesteads have a semi-civilized appearance half of the houses being of squared logs but comfortable with all inside and where a rude plenty of rains or to Beacon Hill, where there is an excellent race course and drive, which commands fine views up and down the straits. In sight is San Juan Island, over which England and America once squabbled, while the two garrisons which occupied it fraternized cordially, and outvied each other in hospitality. The island, rocky and covered with forest and underbrush with a farm or two, made by clearing away the big trees with not a little difficulty, and burning and partially uprooting the stumps does not look a worthy subject for international differences but the fact is that it commands the straits to some extent however all that is over now and it is england's property by diplomatic arrangement there are other islands nearly as large in the archipelago which stretches northward up the gulf of georgia which have not a single human inhabitant and have never been visited except by some stray indians miners or traders Who have gone ashore to cook a meal or camp for the night. End of chapter ten, part number one. Recording by Colin Samuels, Camden, Maine.